Hello everyone and welcome once again to Motos and Friends, the weekly podcast from the editors at Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Motos and Friends is brought to you by the Yamaha R7, your gateway to a new generation of super sport machine. In our first segment, editor Don Williams rides the new Suzuki GSX-8S. This highly anticipated upright naked sport bike features the all-new parallel twin motor from the Big S, and we have been very excited to try it out. Don really liked the engine in Suzuki's new V-Strom, so it'll be interesting to hear if it's even better suited to a street bike. The big question, of course, is who exactly is the target rider for the 8S? Speaking of sport bikes, the Isle of Man TT is arguably the most fearsome, intense, as well as the longest motorcycle race in the world. The superbike races are around 200 miles and 1,200 corners, and that includes two full pit stops. It takes a very special level of skill, courage, and yes, a large dollop of insanity too, to ride in, let alone win, a TT race. The TT races are on right now. See the links below. And just in time for this year's event, I chat with my Aussie friend, Rennie Skaysbrook. Rennie's the road test editor for Cycle News magazine here in the US. As a fellow journalist, he and I have tested motorcycles at tracks all over the world. He's a great guy and a good laugh. He holds the record for the challenging Pikes Peak hill climb, So, as you might imagine, he's an amazingly talented rider too. Rennie rode the Isle of Man TT last year in the Supersport category. He acquitted himself well, despite some technical gremlins. He's riding again this year for the Craig Wilson team, but this time he's on a Superstock-class Honda Fireblade CBR1000RRSP. Now that's a whole different ballgame. Rennie's descriptions of riding the sections around the famed TT course are absolutely electrifying. You think you've got the mental fortitude and level of skill that it takes to thread the TT needle through villages at 195 miles per hour? (laughs) Rennie's take on riding the TT will likely answer that for you. This chat is a doozy, so hold on to your hat for this one. There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of rider meets a new generation of super sport machine. It's called Our World, and the all-new Yamaha YZF-R7 is your gateway. The YZF-R7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZF-R3 and the prestigious YZF-R1, offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle, as well as experienced riders seeking a fully fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true super sport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra thin and lightweight chassis, the YZF-R7 delivers tons of linear torque and it provides you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite canyon. Take a closer look at yamahamotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours.
The 2023 Suzuki GSX-8S is uh, the all-new sport bike from Suzuki, and it features the all-new uh, parallel twin 800cc engine. Uh, you know, it's this what you expect, double hip cam, four valves per cylinder, liquid cooling, fuel injection, all the normal stuff that you expect from a modern motorcycle from Japan. So uh, this is not a replacement, though, for the SV650. The SV650 is still around, and the 8S is its own category in the 800 uh, class. And that kind of brings up, it's not just its own category in the world of Suzuki, but it's also its own category in the motorcycle world, almost. It's more expensive and a more substantial motorcycle than the 650 and 700cc bikes from Japan. And it's also not nearly the performance of the multi-cylinder 900s from Japan. And it's not as expensive as the 900s, and it's more expensive than the 650s and the 700s. Okay. So it slots into its own spot. Uh, pretty clever Suzuki, really. Instead of trying to take on existing models head to head, they said, "Hey, here's a here's a little area that there's not a lot of competition. Let's let's drop into that spot and and see if there's uh, some people there that want a bike like that." And uh, the only bike that comes close is the KTM, which is returning this year, the uh, 2023 KTM 790 Duke, which is their lower spec parallel twin. It's not, it's quite a bit different than the 890 Duke R. Uh, and it, it's $300 more than the Suzuki, but it's about the same, you know, virtually the same displacement, uh, same engine architecture. So it's, it's, it's a head-to-head -head competitor with the Suzuki. Now we haven't had a chance to ride the KTM 790 Duke since it came back. They're working to get one for us and uh, we'll probably have a shootout in the mix uh, coming up for that because really it's the only direct competitor for the 8S. I talk about the bike. It's a lot of it is about talking about how it compares to classes that it's not in because there's not much to, to compare it to directly. So uh, the first thing you notice, and anybody that notices when they get on the 8S, is that it's a, a bigger motorcycle than the 650s, like the MT-07, uh, the Kawasaki uh, Z650, or the Suzuki SV650. This is a, a larger, more substantial, more, quote, adult motorcycle. Those other motorcycles feel a little small. I don't want to say toy, but in comparison, they do. They feel much slighter, much more like just an urban kind of bike. and uh, just not not the same level of 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 gravitas that the the 8s has now at the same time you know when you get going on the bike and twist the throttle it's nothing like a, a yamaha mt09 triple or the kawasaki z900 those are different bikes you know those are much much faster uh, they spin up much higher rpm they're uh a, again a more substantial bike so you know, you, 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 when you get on the bike, you know what you're on. You know you're on something that's different, really, because we have these other bikes that have multiple bikes in the class. And then we have uh, the 8S, which is just kind of its own little thing, bouncing around in the, in, in the middle between them. And it's a good spot, because if, you, if, you, if you're ready to move up even from like a 300 or 400, and maybe the 650, 700 class doesn't seem quite enough, like, like well, yeah, that's more, and it's, and it's definitely more. Uh, you know, this is an upright naked bike, really puts out the, the, the power. You start to feel like you're really getting serious riding. Uh, you know, it, the 800, it revs up 
not not that high, but it has a lot of torque off the bottom and it pushes really good. So when you when you as soon as you get on the bike and you twist the throttle, it's immediately obvious. Just as when you sat on it, you knew it was a bigger bike. It, it it's you know that it puts out way more power than a 650 or 700 and less than the 900s. It's it's just one of those things where you really feel it right away. Every single person, you know, in the on the staff that test rode it said the same thing like, oh yeah, no, yeah, boy, that's that's not as you know, just like another version of a 700. This is a completely different bike. Right. And and it true in both the size of the bike and the power of the bike. Uh, now the suspension not quite so much uh it's it's uh pretty much fixed stamping suspension uh there's a rebound adjustment in the shock but that's it uh the spring preload of course in the rear but the fork is set there's nothing you do it's got plain caps you will like it as it is and what suzuki did with the suspension is quite interesting they made it pretty soft but it's also well damped so you know, you kind of have this like smooth feeling over rougher roads. And when the bike goes into a corner, it's not like a sport bike where it's like on this knife edge. It just kind of settles in and goes through. Now, somebody who's looking for like the ultimate in, in performance, is not, this is not their bike. This is a bike for somebody who wants to go a good clip, but also wants to be comfortable at all times. They don't want to feel jolted. They don't want to feel like they have to be on a racetrack with a racetrack quality roads to have a good time and to feel comfortable and they don't feel like they're going to be you know getting their knee down all the time in the corners they're just going to be riding at a at a normal pace so uh that's where suzuki has his position this it's it's not a bare knuckle brawler in the in the canyons it's a comfortable sport bike that's certainly capable it's got really good low end power again there's you you can rev it and it will respond to the higher revs there's kind of like there's like that low mid and then if you keep it going it kind of picks up speed again through the mid-range to the top end and it'll take you right up to the red line so it's it's a really fun motor you know for somebody again who's not looking to have that that multi-cylinder experience where you're revving it over ten thousand all the time and you know this is more of that porky feel and the roll it on and it's good uh, it has a quick shifter, standard, and it works quite well uh, when you're out in the canyons. goes around good, and uh, it doesn't downshift as good as it upshifts, which is often the case with twins. seems like the, the more cylinders there are, the better a quick shifter likes it. Sure. And so this is still a twin. So especially when you're downshifting, it's not that snick, 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 snick that you might, you know, have experienced on a, on a multi. But it's still great. It, it, the the quick shifter is still far superior to just having a normal uh, clutch, you know, or you know, must where you must clutch downshift, clutch to upshift. It's 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 a it's a better design, and it's you know, and this again on the upshifts, it's, it is pretty clicky. It's not perfect, but it, it's it's close enough that people, the kind of person that's, that is right for this bike, is going to be like amazed at how great it is, rather than complaining that it's not as good as you know some extremely high end bike so the bike is a good canyon bike it has you know very neutral handling it's not uh, maybe i want to say it's neutral it's maybe even a little bit more in the direction of being a little bit more stable you have to put a little bit of effort into changing direction and uh, not a lot but just it's not what you would call flickable 
it, it it's agile enough, but it's certainly not an agile bike. It It's more of a reassuring ride. Again, for somebody who's moving up from 300, 400, they're certainly going to say, wow, this is, you know, this, this doesn't feel the same as my lighter bike. You know, there's, there's more there. I have to put in more effort, but it's also going to be more forgiving. If you make a mistake, it doesn't say, oh, you made a mistake. Well, we're going to go do that, you know, crazy thing right <laughs> now. It just says, okay, we'll, we'll go in that direction, but we're not going to overdo it. Just calm down. And so even when you're doing, you know, S's, you just have to put in a little bit more effort to make it happen but not an unduly amount, unduly amount of effort, or you're not running over the double yellow lines because it won't turn. You know, I don't want to give the impression that the bike doesn't turn, but it's not what I would call an agile bike. And when you add in the softish suspension, it all just kind of flows. It's a very flow, happy bike. It's not a like dive into the corner, get on the brakes as hard as you can, crank the right bike around, get on the gas as hard as you can and go slingshot down the road. That's not what it is. It's more like come into the corner, you get some corner speed, roll on the throttle, shoot out, and you've made it through probably faster than most of the guys who think they're going faster by jamming on the brakes and then trying to get hard on the gas. So, it, you know, it rewards smooth riding. It's a smooth bike. It has a smooth motor. Uh, the One of the features that the S8 motor has that Suzuki touted when it first came out, we first saw it in the uh, V-Strom 800DE, uh, adventure bike is that it's supposed to be, you know, it has a different kind of counterbalancer system and it's supposed to be smoother. And it was in the adventure bike, but the counterbalancer really comes into its own on the, the 8S. You know, the, the bottom half of the rev range, the bike is, is kind of uncannily smooth. Like it just really doesn't feel like it's, you just don't feel the vibrations. I mean, you feel a little bit of the thump uh, you know, it has the 270 degree crank. So it gives that little bit of these twin feel, though not as much as other bikes. I uh, had to double check that that was right, that it had that, you know, off, offset firing. It's like, really? It's, it's, it's so smooth. Are you is that right? And it's like, yeah, that's what they said. Okay. So it's more about, you know, the bike is more about smoothing. Now, as you get in the upper half of the rev range, revs start to, you know, vibrations start to kick in. It's not excessive by any stretch, but you notice them, whereas before you didn't. But again, for most of the time, you're not going to be running up in that part of the rev range. You're going to be down in the lower part and letting the torque do its job. Uh, but if you want, again, you can rev the bike and it is responsive to, to being the throttle being twisted and getting the upper revs. But it's really happy in the mid range and even lower than that. Uh, and it has the power to do that. So. You know, you look at the bike and it's kind of this, this very comfortable, <laughs> comfortable sport bike. You know, it has the soft suspension, the docile handling, the torquey motor, uh, the neutral seating position. You know, it's an upright naked, uh, you know, but the bike will go up to well over 100 miles an hour and it goes up to 100 pretty quick. And then after 100, you know, the, the, the acceleration is, is more limited, but it's not you know, that's fast enough for most people in most situations, <laughs> you know, so you kind of have a, you have that good sense when you're riding with your friends, you're in the canyons, you're going at a good clip, that you can go within the normal range of speeds that you would want to go and have good performance in them and not feel cheated. And it makes it easy for you to go fast. It doesn't make you, it's not easy to go really fast, but it's easy to go fast. And that 
again, for the average guy, the, the person who's realistic about what their expectations are, what they, how they ride, the conditions that they ride in on the street, it's, it's perfect. It really works super well. And it's just, everybody comes back impressed. Like, wow, this bike's really good. And this bike's really, oh, I really like the way that worked. And so it, it's a really, really good sport bike. Now, when Suzuki gave us the bike, they tried to damp our enthusiasm for the sport aspect of it in, in favor of it being more of an urban bike, which is kind of strange because, you know, I talked about the sport bike part because that's kind of the most exciting part and it really is good. But if you look at the ads that the 8S on the Suzuki website, half of the ad is people running around town, you know, so they're definitely pushing this bike as an urban motorcycle, not is just purely a sport bike that you go out and you go ripping around. One interesting thing when you're riding as a sport bike is the delivery of the power is that it does have three power modes. It has A, B, and C. <laughs> a being the most aggressive, B in the middle, and C being for the rain. So the C kind of rain, bad conditions, kind of not paying attention to that. But the use of the A and B was really interesting. The less aggressive riders actually liked the A mode which was kind of a bit more, it's definitely more aggressive. You can tell the difference when you switch between them, more aggressive throttle response and kind of more exciting ride. But the more experienced riders found that the A mode, when they were, when they were hard on the throttle, which they would be like cranking it on, that the fuel injection was a little bit notchy and the bike wasn't as smooth as it could be. So if you're really aggressive with the throttle, the A mode is, is not as smooth as you'd like. And they ended up using the B mode more often because they could be aggressive with the throttle without disrupting the chassis due to, you know, a jerky throttle response. Whereas the lesser riders who put on the throttle with less aggression, roll it on, maybe a little bit more sensitive throttle wise, they liked the A mode because it was faster. So it was <laughs> kind of the yeah, kind of the flip side of what you would expect. Uh, nobody wanted the C mode, <laughs> but if you were somebody new coming from a, let's say a Honda CB300F, C mode's not a bad way to start. Just kind of get your feet wet and go, okay, and then crank it up. I mean, the bike is easy to ride in all of them. You know, every, everybody that gets on it can certainly ride it. But for me, and I, I, I'll go in the, into the less aggressive camp. I'm not this, the, this, the track guy, so I'm not as hard on the throttle. I felt like in the B mode, like when I'd get on the throttle, kind of roll it on the way I would roll it on. It, it's one of those things where it feels like it's a rubber band instead of a cable. <laughs> and it's right. just kind of stretching on and then it kind of catches up. All the, the, the three modes all have the maximum, same maximum horsepower. Like it, when they hit the red line, they're all putting out the same horsepower. It's just how aggressively they get there. Right. And so I, I didn't, I can't say I didn't like the B mode, but I kind of didn't like the B mode <laughs> because I didn't feel that more direct power that I would have liked. But again, that's my throttle moderation is through my hand, not through the power delivery of the, of the motor. So I don't need my hand to be accentuated by the, the slower power response. I, I want the more direct power response and, and my, my wrist will automatically adjust to that. You're using small throttle openings yeah. rather than the guy that's riding aggressively that's, that's you know, using big throttle openings. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Even when I get to the big throttle openings, I get to them more slowly and right. there's also traction control but that's doesn't make as big a difference uh most we we pretty much you have off one and two and we pretty much ran it in one 
Uh, right. You know, if you're really persnickety, you might say, well, I want it off. You know, it's like the mic's not going to be spinning up the rear wheel much anyway. So that's probably fine. Uh, I just like that little, you know, knowledge that the, the one is there. There's a little bit of traction control just in case I hit something. A little, little bit of insurance. Yeah. yeah. So the engine, the electronics are simple, but effective. Uh, the different the different power modes are noticeably different. Uh, the traction control is not noticeably different, but it's good, you know, and again, if it's raining, you'd want to put it in two, so you'd have the maximum safety range there. ABS is not adjustable, but it's it's fine. Uh, there's you know 30, 310 millimeter front disc brakes, and uh, you know they have good power. But again, just like so much of the other bike, and this is all about kind of the consistency of the bike. They're not overly aggressive when you first put on the brake. It it eases in. It, you know, as long as you're using in, yes, if you just grab it, but nobody does it. But if you grab the front brake hard, just, rah, you know, yeah, it's going to jerk, <laughs> but it's easy to modulate it so that, you know, you get a smooth initial application of the brake. And, and so it's very progressive feel, soft, soft, soft. And then as you, you pull it, it gets progressively harder. They'll slow down the bike, no doubt about it. You know, and the rear brake actually adds some if you'd like it to. So the brakes are, are, are really good. Again, it's perfect bike for the person moving up that wants to have that, that kind of cushion, that safety net underneath them. So in case they make a mistake, you didn't just, oh, I pulled the, the brake, pe brake lever a little bit too hard. Oh, I'm going over the bars. You know, it's just like, that's okay. Yeah. It just slowed down a little faster than I thought, but it's fine. Uh, I, I was able to actually trigger the front ABS, which you, normally I don't uh, a few times. So the bike has that confidence, partly because of its stability, that you can get harder on the brake and feel like, you know, you're, you're going to be good. So it, it has Dunlop Sportmax Road Sport 2 tires, which are not, you know, the Q5s, but that's okay. They're about right for the bike. For the amount of performance that this bike delivers, you don't need the ultimate in tires. This is a good you know, high-end sport touring kind of tire where it's going to get good mileage, but still give you plenty of grip for the kind of riding, the kind of rider that the 8S would attract and would smartly buy this bike. So, so going into town, the bike's just super fun. Uh, associate editor Kelly Callen used it to, to commute to work and she just, a huge smile on her face. She goes, this bike is just so easy to ride. You know, it's like it'll zoom up, when the traffic is going and moving and I need to be going 80 or 85 so I don't get run over, no problem. It's right there. When I need to split lanes, it's it, the power delivery is not notchy or, or twitchy. Uh, the bike's stable and still, you know, able to move between at 445, 445 pounds. It's not lightweight. And, it, you know, again, it's not super aggressive. The rake is 25 degrees. So the bike is stable and that's when even when lane splitting you don't need necessarily to be twitching around you need to have the bike feel like you can set it to a spot and it will go where you want it to go right and that's that's the case here it works super well as a commuter bike it's fun to ride around town just no effort it's just just, just completely intuitive just how much throttle you give and how it feels the throttle even in town you might drop it into the b mode and uh just ride casually and and it's it's great for that and you know, again it, you'd be you're going to be in the lower half of the rpm so it's super smooth but it still has that good push of that 800 twin it's the motor 
The chassis is just fantastic for all but the tightest of urban sort of situations. You know, it's not where if it's, a, if it's a place where you'd want to ride a Honda Metropolitan scooter, yeah, it feels like a big bike. But for <laughs> like kind of the suburban, a little bit more open urban areas, it's it's just a cool bike to ride. And uh, I always talk about the cool factor of the bike. This bike isn't like incredibly cool. This one is the blue has the blue wheels, the white plastic, but it's still got people like, oh, that's pretty cool. Uh, I went to a local burger joint, and the kid behind the counter looks up, like, oh, what's that? And he goes, oh, yeah. they eat us. Oh, I've read about that. Oh, that's cool. How do you like it? And you know, I told him about it. And he has a uh, Suzuki uh, DRZ 400 Supermoto, and so he was looking at this thinking, yeah, this is my next. And that was his first bike. And he's thinking, this is what I want to get next. And so he was definitely on board with like moving up from his 400 single to an 800 twin. Right. But he, he liked the way the bike looked. It, it worked with his idea of who he was and what he, how he would want to present himself. But it also looked like a bike that he would be happy to ride around on. So, uh, you know, it's, it's great when you see some kid go, yeah, this is cool. You know, oh, that's a cool bike. Right. Yeah, I want to ride that. You know, I want, I might get, you know, I might save up some money, you know, I might get one of those. That's, that's great. You know, yeah. so that, that was cool. And uh, it was cool. Oh, I always love when people, you know, who ride motorcycles talk to me and especially uh, somebody who's pretty young and they've got a super moto bike. I'm like, yeah, he's having some fun. I bet, I hope he's doing some wheelies. <laughs> I hope he's backing it in somewhere and not getting the attention of the police when he's doing it because <laughs> his insurance will go through the roof. So, Another nice thing about the bike, and this is kind of more round town thing, is it has a TFT display, something that GSX S1000 sport bike doesn't have. It has an LCD and everybody squawks and complains about how antiquated it looks and it does. And so now that they're, they're really rubbing it in the nose of the 1000 owners by giving the 800 this new TFT. <laughs> and it's got a, a analog style tachometer. Oh, okay. The red line is just below 10,000. So it's easy to read that. Uh, it has a big position indicator, so you can see that, and it's right next to the speed, so that's that's good. So you can see what the you know what gear you're in for the people who like that. I'm not the biggest fan of that. I don't I mean I just don't care one way or the other, but it's, that's nice to have. Uh, and but the speedometer, the speed is digital, very big. Uh, one odd thing about it is it has this fuel gauge, where it's it's five bars five black squares kind of canted forward kind of like the old yamaha fz red you know rectangles you know kind of trapezoids or whatever right. anyway when it's full the red one is red which is the left end like an empty and then you have four black ones and when you look at it somebody gets on it to go uh oh it's about to run out of gas and the red one is always red whereas as you go out it lower the gas the gray the black trapezoids turn gray oh. but you're always thinking because the red is illuminated that the bike's almost out of gas <laughs> so it's kind of annoying you can scroll through the info and you can get a range so i i'm i'm somebody who likes the range i'm big on range so that's usually what i have it on so i kind of don't pay attention to the gas i just pay attention to how much range i have and how soon do i need to go get gas right so that's good and also it has in big numbers and letters, the traction control and the engine mode. Uh, they have buttons on the left handlebar that are really easy to use. It's easy to move between 
all the different things that you would want to do. There's a clock in the upper right-hand corner of the, of the rectangle of the TFT, uh, easy to read. And uh, in fact, the picture we took on the review is at 5.14 p.m. And you can read that with, with no problem. Kelly did complain, though, uh, in town about the clutch. It's a slip and assist clutch, but the clutch is a bit on the heavy side. And we had an SV650 handy, and the SV650, it felt like the clutch was attached to nothing <laughs> compared to the 800. So it was, you know, it's a big, it's one, you know, if you're, you know, have a, a less than strong male hand, you know, you may notice that the clutch feels a little bit heavier than you would like. And uh, I didn't notice it, you know, it was, it wasn't, you know, I noticed it when I went on the 650 and pulled it, it's like, oh yeah, wow, that's a big difference. But uh, it's not like a Harley or something, you know, it's not like excessively heavy, but it is heavier. And again, when she's commuting and she's doing lane splitting in traffic, you know, the lighter clutch is nice. So the right. clutches could, could, could stand to get a bit, a bit more assist. Right. I didn't, you know, downshifting, I know if, if the slipper function came in, I didn't realize it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it just seems to keep traction pretty good. The bike, again, the long, stable feel, it, it works pretty good. So what Suzuki has done is uh, quite interesting with the S8. Uh, they took, a, they look at all the classes and bikes available. And they said, where's there a gap? They found a gap. They put the bike in the gap. They priced it in the gap. The performance is in the gap. The size is in the gap. Yeah. And uh, I think they're going to entice, they're not going to entice anybody to drop down from a 900 class bike. I mean, I, I don't know why anybody would really want to do that unless they're just kind of in that, they're getting old and wanted to move down, but they'd probably want to move down farther. Uh, somebody that's riding a 650 or 700, this is a step up and, and maybe they'd want to do it. But boy, I would think that if, if you're outgrowing that, that you're probably your next step would be a 900 class. Although the 800 might be just that enough extra that would satisfy you without having the bulk that goes with the multi-cylinder 900. You might go, yeah, this, I, this is the bike. So it, it, it's a really good bike for those coming up. The, the 300, 400 people, they're going to look at this and go, yeah, this is the bike. I can sk skip the 650, 700 class. I can go to here. This is, I can put it in SEMO the first couple of rides just to make sure and then, you know, move my way up. Uh, so the positioning is good. I, I, I think that Suzuki product managers were onto something with this. Looking for a gap again, why, why go up against everybody else on something when you can sneak in and say, Hey, I've got something that nobody else has, except for again, the KTM 790 Duke. Although I think that appeals to a different sort of more performance oriented person in general, you know, KTM is not quite the uh, household name that Suzuki is. Suzuki's been around longer in the United States than KTM, and certainly as a street bike company, right. you know, people are so, they're still, you know, KTM still working to to expand the public view of them as as a dirt bike company into also a street bike company, and they they you know with the Duke bikes they've certainly done that, but they still have like a huge range of dirt bikes and then a smaller range of street bikes, whereas Suzuki has more street bikes than dirt bikes. Right. But still, I can't wait. I can't wait to ride the two back to back because you know when they have a price difference of just three hundred dollars, and you have the same displacement, same engine architecture, it's like okay, let's see what these two bikes are all about. Where are where is one stronger than the other? How who's going to be the one? Who's going to want one over the other, and why? That's going to be a good test because I mainly because I have no idea how that would turn out, and uh, yeah, that, that's going to be good.
Correct me if I'm wrong, but the 8S sounds like the big brother to the SV650. That's not as not as crazy as it sounds, but the SV650 certainly it's a very beloved bike because you know it's easy to ride, it's got a sort of substantial feel to it, it's a twin, it's got plenty of torque. And the 8S just sounds like a sort of a bigger version of of that really stable, great platform that is so beloved with the SV650. Do you think there's any sort of yeah. merit to that sort of argument? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the SV650 is the most stable bike in its category, right. and it's the torquiest bike in its category. And this 800, the 8S, is more about torque and stability. Right. So it 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 takes it comes directly from the SV650, uh, you know, workbook workbook page. Right. But boy, when you ride them back to back, they're quite, you know, the difference between them is very apparent. It's not like you go, oh, it's just a little tiny bit different. No, no, no. I'm sure it's huge. Right. It's quite different, though the same exact sort of experience. Similar sort of concept almost. Yeah, absolutely. You know, addressing a really wide range of people. In other words, the sort of the experienced expert who's not a not a necessarily a hardcore sport guy. But nevertheless, an expert level rider will be quite satisfied with it. And like you say, really, a really, really novice type of rider could also get on very well with it. So it's addressing a really wide range of the market, potentially. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it stakes out its own spot in the market, which is even which is even better. Because not everybody wants a triple or a four cylinder bike and the bulk and the expense that comes with maintaining it, you know, more complex motorcycle. I haven't looked at insurance, but I'm sure the insurance on those bikes is higher. So this is going to be an appealing bike to somebody who kind of wants the top end of that twin cylinder sort of, sort of bike. And uh, they did a great job with it. You know, I love the motor in the V-Strom uh, 800DE, but the motor's kind of saddled with more bike there. You know, it's a heavier bike. It's a bigger bike. So you're not really working the motor in the same sort of way. The motor's job is just kind of keep the bike going. Whereas on the sport bike, the 8S, it, the motor's there to like get some excitement going and to really, right. you know, make some performance happen. But again, in a way that's very approachable to a, a lot of people. That's great. Okay. Sounds like that sounds like they've really hit the nail on the head and it it doesn't surprise me. What what I imagine the fit and finish on it is really good. The panel fit. I mean, Suzuki boys had exemplary finish on their bikes. Yeah, and I assume it's the same kind of level. It all looks right. Uh, you know, it's got a twin spar frame rather than a, a trellis frame, although it has a trellis subframe. So it it doesn't have the normal Suzuki look exactly uh, for that size. You know, because the SV650 is kind of famous for its trellis frame, but it's not the same kind of twin spar is like a gsxr either you know it's kind right of, okay. you know it's, it's it's much more subtle look there's more plastic okay. covering it and uh it has its own look and uh you know the plastic has that kind of modern transformery kind of look which some people like and some people don't like <laughs> right but uh it's definitely and it was an interesting bike i didn't know what to expect coming into it and uh i was certainly pleasantly impressed by what it delivered Excellent. Uh, do we know a price point on them yet? Yeah, uh, right. Right in the middle between the, the 650, 700s and the 900s, uh, Suzuki has decided that the price is $8,849.
That's very reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. So it's Excellent. it's again, it's not in that 10k range, and it, but it's not in that seven, you know, or even 8k range. You know, the bottom of the eight, you know, high sevens, low eights. So it's it's right in the middle. You know, and that's what they did is they took this bike and they said, let's put it right in the middle. Very smart. Very smart. Everything about it is right in the middle. <laughs> I love it. Okay. All right, Don. Hey, thank you so much. I appreciate your insight. I'm really looking forward to writing this one. Okay. All right. All right. Thanks. Talk to you later. <laughs> Bye. The Isle of Man TT is arguably the most fearsome, intense, as well as the longest motorcycle race in the world. The superbike races are around 200 miles and 1,200 corners, and that includes two full pit stops. It takes a very special level of skill, courage, and yes, a large dollop of insanity too, to ride in, let alone win, a TT race. The TT races are on right now. See the links below. And just in time for this year's event, I chat with my Aussie friend, Rennie Skaysbrook. Rennie's the road test editor for Cycle News magazine here in the US. As a fellow journalist, he and I have tested motorcycles at tracks all over the world. He's a great guy and a good laugh. He holds the record for the challenging Pikes Peak hill climb. So, as you might imagine, he's an amazingly talented rider too. Rennie rode the Isle of Man TT last year in the Supersport category, he acquitted himself well, despite some technical gremlins. He's riding again this year for the Craig Wilson team, but this time he's on a superstock class Honda Fireblade CBR1000RRSP. Now that's a whole different ball game. Rennie's descriptions of riding the sections around the famed TT course are absolutely electrifying. You think you've got the mental fortitude and level of skill that it takes to thread the TT needle through villages at 195 miles per hour? <laughs> Rennie's take on riding the TT will likely answer that for you. This chat is a doozy, so hold on to your hat for this one. There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of rider meets a new generation of super sport machine. It's called Our World, and the all-new Yamaha YZF-R7 is your gateway. The YZF-R7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZF-R3 and the prestigious YZF-R1, offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle, as well as experienced riders seeking a fully fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true supersport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZF-R7 delivers tons of linear torque and it provides you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite canyon. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. Well, the TT has kind of been intertwined in my family, uh, not for not too long, to be honest, but like my dad was a three-time TT racer. Um, it comes 
also I think because of Australia's ties with the UK, you know, Australia is much more closely aligned to the UK than what America is, for example. So like, you know, I mean, you being a Brit, me being an Aussie, like the, you know, about cricket and soccer and all that stuff, food, and like every, there's so many close things that are related. So that like the, the TT was always a much bigger thing in Australia than it ever was in, in, in America. But it was, you know, it was always a bigger thing in, in my house than it was in other places, more because I don't think my dad ever really pushed it. Uh, he certainly never really did push it at all on me. It was more that I was just obsessed with it. I mean, I remember as a kid uh, being what, 11, 12 years old and dad came home with the 1994 TT video review, the last year that Steve Hislop won. And I memorized that thing word for word. Like, it was just, I must've had the thing. As soon as I come home from school, I would put it on. Um, and so, I mean, I always wanted to race, but like, I never had the, I never had a lot of the required requirements to be a pro racer and uh, probably talent and drive was probably high up there. And so it was, it was a case of, I really wanted to ride motorbikes for a living. Um, but I was also, wasn't really sure about how I was going to do it. So when I got into, uh, when I got less school, I became a mechanic and just I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I knew it was hell. I knew as sure as hell it wasn't going to be being a mechanic for it, but I just needed a job. And so did that. And then I started to actually travel in uh, in the in Europe for a couple of months and was writing really long emails back home. And a couple of people said to me that they enjoyed reading my writing. So they, and I, I always thought I'd be kind of cool to maybe be a bike journal. when I was like, at the time, my, my uh, then uh, girlfriend, was working at a pretty prestigious uh, sort of private college in Sydney. And she, she was like, yeah, this place is renowned for journalism. You know, they churn out, you know, news anchors, radio personalities, all kinds of stuff. Like, do. So jumped on that and uh, I was only there for a year. And then I got the job at Rapid Bikes and uh, in Rapid Bikes magazine. Um, and anyway, uh, that led me into back into racing. So it became a possibility where, you know, I raced a little bit as a kid and like, as like 19, 20 years old, but it was, again, didn't have the funds, didn't have the, the right guidance, all the, you know, tick all the wrong boxes, basically. Whereas now when I was in a bike journey stage, I could get some good rides and I could have a bit of a go. And um, I got to do some good racing in Australia, did a couple of years in the national circuit and, and, uh, and then, did a lot of I uh, did a bit of riding in in New Zealand on street racing and that was my first crack at a at a street race and I actually went okay uh, I think I finished fifth or sixth or something at my first go and and I was like oh this is, this is all right and it's just kind of like fun. it was like road testing really <laughs> and, uh, um, certainly when you go riding with someone like Adam Wade it's just like road testing so um, and then when I came to America, I got off of the job of Cycle News in 2015 and moved to America. And the first thing I did, like one of the very first gigs I ever got when I was out here was we went to Pikes Peak as a, as a spectator when we, when Indian uh, were racing, well, Victory then were, were racing. So I'm like, doing that. And then I came back and then I cobbled a thing together with KTM, did that, eventually won up with Aprilia, and then that opened the door to, to get to the Isle of Man. So I'm sorry, that was a very long-winded answer for that. <laughs> that's, that's okay. I think your dad rode at the Isle of Man, though, didn't he? Didn't yeah, he? three times. He had like three times, yeah. And yeah. I think 
did, I, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but he went over with Mike Halewood, I think the first time. Was that the yes. like 19, that's got to be in like the late 70s, I would think. 78. 78, yeah. okay. That was the year that Halewood won it on the uh on that uh on that ducati wasn't it I think. yeah on the ncr ducati it's right um now and that that whole thing mike's comeback was in a large part probably i, I don't wouldn't say all of it but very large part of it was to do with dad because uh at the time dad was uh dad and his mates you know the, his lifelong mates uh they were just mucking around playing playing with then classic bikes like at Manx Norton's and they weren't even that classic. You know, they were only 10 years old at the time. Um, you know, this is not like early 70s. Um, and Mike was actually living in New Zealand, uh, of all things, after he retired from Formula One, he moved to New Zealand. And, you know, his greatest motorcycle racer in the world was then selling boats at the bottom of the world in New Zealand. So you can imagine like living the high life in Formula One and MotoGP for all those years and then selling boats at the bottom of the world is probably not going to kick your adrenaline glands real hard. So, <laughs> yeah. so he, ends, he ends up going over to, to Sydney a couple of times and got a couple of gigs and dad actually beat him a few times uh, on these classic bikes. And, wow. and they were, you know, they were like two peas in a pod. They were, you know, best mates pretty much. And they did a couple of, like Mike eventually moved back I don't know when exactly it was that he went back to the UK, but the, Dad and him did, I think, two, might be three. I think it was two six-hour races, Castrol six-hour races, which at the time, the Castrol six-hour was one of the biggest races in the world. Sure. Um, certainly was for the Japanese manufacturers. It was the biggest race outside the Suzuka eight hours. Um, you know, this was back in the kind of glory days of endurance racing. And so they actually rode a Ducati, a 900 SS Ducati together in, I think, 76 and 77, I think. Um, and they finished fifth or sixth one year. Um, I think they actually won that class, actually. And uh, then the interest started coming of Mike maybe going back to the TT. And he, I think from memory, he said that he actually asked Dad if he wanted to come along. And they had the deal going with NCR and they got the bikes, you know, the, the gorgeous, you know, ultra rare NCR Ducatis, the ones that are worth more than most people's houses. And uh, yeah, off they went. So that was the first time Dad had a go was in 1978. And then he went back in 1980 and he rode a TZ500, um, Yamaha TZ500, the, the production version of the bike that Kenny Roberts won his last world championship on. And then in 1984, was it 82 or 84? I can't remember which one. Uh, he raced in the classic, the first official classic TT, which was actually run by Dave Roper. Okay. So... Yeah, so he had his he had three goes at it. I'm going back for my second. It's awesome. So it's really so it's kind of in your blood then, really. Kinda, yeah. Is it something that you've wanted to do like all your life, or or yeah. just in, or just in recent years? And <laughs> good question. I often ask myself that too. <laughs> it's, <laughs> Is it the old, you know, Edmund Hillary? You know, because it's there. Kinda, yeah. Um, the TT is. I, I thought. I mean, honestly, I thought the TT, the boat for the TT, had sailed long ago. Um, I remember back in when I used to be the road test editor at Australian Motorcycle News, and I remember at the time trying to get, well, it should be right this second, uh, at the Northwest 200, um, oh, and because right. that's happening right now, and I wish to God I was there. Um, anyway, uh, I tried to get a ride at Northwest 200, and that didn't work, and by that stage, I was 28, I think, and... I just kind of thought, like, this is never going to happen. And 
But when I moved to America, I raced more in the last eight years in America than I ever did in Australia. I got so much support from not just one particular company. I mean, so mainly the, the biggest support was out of, out of Pirelli that really enabled me to race for such a long time. But I also got so much help from other companies, got help from Kawasaki, Honda, Suzuki, um, and just picking up rides here and there. And like everyone's just been so amazing. KTM, she's KTM, Aprilia, you know, Pikes Peak. Like they've all just been so wonderful that it gave me enough time on the bike, enough consistent riding where my riding got to a pretty decent level. And, you know, when the we would race at CVMH up Walla and the Moto America kids had come along, I wouldn't get smoked by the Moto America kids. And then I was like, okay, all right, um, I can maybe do this. And, um, you know, I was sitting at one of my really good friends is David Johnson, the Australian TT racer who's sitting off at number one this year in all the all the classes in Superbike, Superstock, all that. So very, he's got the he's got the he's going to be the rabbit everyone's chasing. Right. And I was sitting on a I just won the last Pikes Peak with Aprilia in 2019. And I was sitting on the beach at Dana Point and just texting back and forth with Davo and and I was like I'm just seeing this one on text I'll never forget and said what do you think your chances are of me getting a ride at the TT and then about 10 minutes later I got a text back saying oh probably pretty good you want me to make some inquiries and I'm like yeah what's the worst that could happen and <laughs> and that was like famous last words honestly like it, within two days I had a verbal or no a written offer from Paul Phillips as the manager of Managing director of the of the TT to come over in at the end of the year to have a look, like all expenses paid, uh, put me in a hotel, give me a car, um, flew me over, and to come over and uh, have a look at the thing, uh, have a look at the thing with no bike stuff around. You know, you got the Manx Grand Prix plus the TT, the main TT. Place is madness when that goes on. And at the end of November, nothing much is going on at the Isle of Man. The days are pretty short, very cold, they're usually wet. Um, so it was about as further away from the TT as you can get. And actually, when I turned up there, it kind of you kind of had to squint a little bit to sort of think, oh yeah, this is actually a racetrack. <laughs> but I'll admit the first time I saw the TT straight properly, I was like, shit, this is. This is the real fucking deal. <laughs> Whereabouts were you standing when you first saw it? Top of Bray Hill. Top of Bray Hill, yes, yeah, same here. Yeah, Top of Bray Hill. 2008, I was there. Yeah, it's it's something else, that thing. It's like, unbelievable. Yeah, and and again, you really can't... Uh, I'm trying to try and describe it, but it's like you really can't sort of explain really how full-on it is when you hit the thing at speed. Even when you're going off, when you start and then you go over, like you're clicking through the gears and whatever. Mind you, I've only ever done it on a 600 so far this year. I'm going back on a big bike, which is just a whole nother level of crazy. That's going to change everything. That's going to change everything. your lines. It's going to change your braking point. I mean, it's going to be like starting again. Yeah, it will be. Um, and it's, you know, the buyers are going incredibly quick this at the moment. So it's like you, everything you have to, you have to, you have to qualify within 110% of the leader. Right. I don't know what that'll be. Hopefully it's not too fast. <laughs> Who's going to be the leader this year? Probably Peter Hickman, maybe? Uh, it's the usual guys. It's either going to be Hickman, Harrison, Johnson, right. um, 
right. usual suspects they're all the same and michael dunlop um yeah all those guys i mean those guys are on such a connor cummins they're on such a different plane they, they don't they're not even in the same race as you um whereas like but i'll tell you like go back to go back to the point before i forget about bray hill it's like when you when you first hit it at real speed which means you come out of the final corner and you're in top of sixth gear the things licking the rev limiter by the time you're going past the start finish line you then have to basically straight line it you go over some indians crossroads and the thing takes air and but you're going so fast then all of a sudden it just like drops down like it doesn't doesn't go down a hill slowly it likes you riding off the end of the fucking world at 160 mile an hour like and you just you've got the 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 houses and there's a big park on the left hand side and it goes all green for a second and then all of a sudden you've got people's front yards like just ripping past your vision and and then you hit the bottom of bray hill and the whole thing compresses like the whole bike like it's the only time that i've genuinely felt a bike really flex like when you when i've when the suspension gets completely bottomed out everything's on the floor and you can still feel the bike bending underneath you for a split second like it's a really weird feeling and then you just like you you pop out the thing rebounds back out and you pop out over Rago's leap and i think i said to you it's a coda it's like i imagine that's what it's like being born (laughs) (laughs) it's wild honestly yeah really is i think it was hunter wasn't it hunter s thompson said being shot out of a cannon is always going to be better than squeezed out of a tube. That's right. He was he was on he was onto something that guy. <laughs> it's, it's like being shot out of a cannon. It really is. Yeah, I was uh, standing up on Bray Hill, uh, pretty much opposite that park that you're talking about. And when yeah. the bikes came past, and I was standing there with a bunch of friends, and the concussion from the from the 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 air um yeah lifted us off our feet i mean it was horrifying to watch and that was that wasn't from on board the bike well i got a i have a story about that about that air situation so um in the last day last or second last day of practice last year the superbikes good thing about running a 600 at the tt is you're allowed to run every session because it's kind of like the middle ground between all the speeds so you can run out with the superbikes you can run with the twins you can you know super stock you can run whatever you want so if you've got a couple of bikes if you have one or two bikes you can basically just crank out laps anyway we went through the quarry bends which is um, a bit about halfway around the, the track quarry bends is where just after the balakrai jump which is the big famous jump where you see everyone leaping off and you see the 30 mile an hour sign in the background and people are doing 170 in midair right. uh, <laughs> so um you go into quarry bends and then you back one gear and it's one, two, three, four, five, six corners. And it's most important to get the second one. This, this, so you turn right, turn left. It's like a series of chicanes all linked in. And the second left is the most important one. Because if you get that one right, you can then just sit on the thing and just crack it to full throttle. And honestly, it's like rowing through cement. It's like you've never counter-steered it so hard in your life. Like you're just trying to the bike is trying to go straight the whole time and all you're doing is like just lift the body thing across and and uh, and that that last lap i got it i'm like i'm on all right because the best thing is after that once you get it out of that last corner is the salty strokes the fastest part of the circuit 
So that's where you, if you get a good run on the Solby, you're going to, that's as fast as you'll ever go. And, and so I'm like, yep, on it. And then click six gear, went to throw it into the left. And then this bike goes around the outside of me and picks my bike up, like pushes the inside of my bike up and fires it out to the trees. And I'm doing on 140 mile an hour, I think at this point. And I was just completely like, what the fuck's going on? What happened? I thought, I thought something snapped on the bike or whatever. And then it, it, but I hadn't had enough time to stop before I realized that the bike was still working okay. And then I realized what it was, it was Jamie Coward. He had an R1, uh, uh, Jamie, Jamie's like a fifth, fifth attempt kind of guy, but you know, if on his day, he could get on the box and, um, he went around the outside of me so fast that the bow wave from the wind that he was pushing just picked my bike and me up and just put me on the other side of the circuit. Wow. Like it was oh. it was fucking wild. Absolutely wild. So we got to the I got to the end of that straight and because I thought for a split, split second, I'm like, uh-oh, here it comes. And I, I managed to get the things squared up. And uh, and that was funny too, like we after the practice. Because uh, the best thing about TT is they have uh, physiotherapies there, and you, you really need the physio. And so after the after practice, I walked in the physio, and I'm lying on the thing, and then Jamie Coward walks in, and he's oh, oh sorry about that, oh, mate. And I was just like, uh, yeah, mate, it's fine, don't worry about it. Like <laughs> you just sit there, we're looking at each other while we're getting back rocks. <laughs> God, yeah, yeah. wow. And and you were telling me about um, about peter hickman in a corner there's one corner you said which corner was that uh the corner is the crosby corner so um peter runs i mean peter is has pushed the game peter and dean harrison have pushed the the game further you know there's every generation they've all got those guys you know whether you know you can talk about the nba with like you know Shaq and kobe you can any any sport there's always those couple of guys that push along and peter doesn't run any electronics on his bike peter's bike is a full-blown 100 you know bsb slash world super bike kind of level of bike and uh wow you know full swing on full deal everything he doesn't run any electronics because he spends so much time in the air that it screws up the electronics you know like they don't know what's what's going on but he goes into this corner for crosby which is one of the gnarliest corners in the whole circuit it's on a 600 it's absolutely pegged in six gear he does it pegged on a superbike six gear and what he does is he he goes out wide it's a very if you if you're ever whoever's listening if you ever want to see the photo just type in peter hickman crosby c-r-c-r-o-s-b-y and he he goes into this thing and then he puts all the weight on the front of the bike which which pivots the back end round like a proper power slide going into it but he uses it to finish off the corner and then square it up and keep going the only difference is he's doing 185 mile an hour when he does this um and he's got a telegraph file on someone's front door you know just to his right so it's it's like the physics that to do something like that to have that kind of accuracy lap after lap is just mind-blowing honestly it's it's so full-on that's absolutely astounding yeah. And by the way, you're going to be doing that. No, I'm not. Shit, no, I'm going to break for that corner. <laughs> <laughs> no, no way. <laughs> no, no way. No. Yeah. I'll no, roll. I'm not, that, 
<laughs> God, no. Wow. <laughs> Hats off to you, man. That is unbelievable. So what, yeah. the first time, what did you find was the biggest challenge? I know it's all about, um, you know, course knowledge, but what was the biggest challenge you had when you first, the first time, your first lap, I guess? Uh, yeah, oh, look, there's so many points. I mean, the the main thing is like, you you know where you're going. That, and that's that comes down to playing the game on the PlayStation, watching YouTube videos. If you're lucky enough to live in the UK or even better on the Isle of Man, you can just go out and do a lap after work. Like that's, you. there's no, everyone who goes to that place knows where they're going. The, the hard part is knowing where all the little nooks and crannies are on the circuit. So there's, you know, you can look at a straight line and go, oh yeah, it's just a straight piece of road but there's different cambers, there's little bumps here and there, there's little things that'll unsettle the bike. And um, there's one in particular, which is, it's kind of known, but like if you, it's, you go through Laurel Bank um, and once you get to, you go past the Black Dub, I think it is the Black Dub or Black Car, I can't remember. Um, it's a straight piece of road, but it has this nice little, just like, just a little rise in it that you, you hit it at the slightest angle. If you don't hit it at the slightest angle, you're going to hit the wall. But you don't know until you've done it once. So, you you know, it's like that thing, you know, once bitten, twice stupid kind of thing. And um, so you you know what's there. So you make sure of it. But the biggest thing, aside from that, that was the most surprising was just how rough it is. Like the whole circuit is, there's so many sections where you ride the bike like a dirt bike. Like you you are out of the seat, you, you like you're riding on sand. Where you your ass is out of the seat, you lean back, and you have the thing pinned, and you just let the bike just kind of track itself, and then because your your ass is not touching the seat, you're letting the suspension do all the work. So it's like it's like hitting supercross whoops in a way. And you're just, just holding the bike on your quads, basically holding your whole. Body. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. I mean, like you you kind of grip it with your knees, um, sit yourself back off the seat, hold onto the bars, and try not to be too rigid with the bars like you try and just let the thing kind of sort itself out like it kind of tracks where it wants to go you're just pushing and pulling just to kind of keep the thing in the right direction of travel effectively and keep the thing keep the throttle on because the thing that that hurts you more than most is hitting something at three quarters speed or two-thirds speed it's that theory of like you got hit full on and have all the forces going through the bike so that it just eats the bumps and just keeps going. But if you go slow, you're going into the bumps, over the bumps and into the bumps. Right. And that's when you can start getting really, really nasty tank slappers and, and uh, it can all go, you know, very, very sideways. Right. So that was the 600. So what are you going to be riding this year then? You're riding for Wilson Craig Racing, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. So lucky enough to get the gig with Wilson Craig and, uh, Anybody that has any knowledge of the TC will know that team. Uh, it's a very famous team. Sure. Uh, again, it was um, organised by Davo um, and uh, good old boy. And uh, uh, so they were you know, Darren Gilpin. So Wilson Craig actually passed away a few years ago, but the yeah, twenty nineteen. Yeah, the team's taken over by which uh, his kind of right hand boy um, Darren Gilpin. So he's now running the. The show, um, very switched on guy, knows knows everything about everything at the TT. And yeah, so this year we'll be on a Honda CBR 1000, the SP2 model. It's the previous generation one. Uh, 
compared to the new one, which I'm actually really happy about because it fits normal sized people. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's the same one that you and I rode in Portimao. Uh, yeah, all yeah, those yeah, years yeah. ago. Awesome, that was a great bike. Yeah, so it was, but it's just that it's a better bike for me for my size. I mean, I got to be honest with myself and go, look, I'm not going there to win it. I don't even care about lap time. All I care about is qualifying and finishing the races. Anything after that is a bonus. Um, well, I should say also underlying finishing, you know, coming home in the same pace that I'm in now. Right. Yeah, you, know, you got to, at that place, I mean, you talk about ego death, like there's no place in the world like the Isle of Man to, to bitch slap you down and to, you know, you think you're good. It's like, oh no, <laughs> you, you're down there, boy. <laughs> the rest of them are up here. And um kind of shows you how good some of those guys really really are and i mean you can watch people do that sort of stuff and see clip you see youtube clips and all that kind of stuff but until you actually are on track with them and you know how hard you're riding and then you see they're going 10 12 mile an hour faster than you as an average speed you know like that's at the end of an hour they're 12 miles in front of you like that's ridiculous. You know, they're going that fast. I mean, Michael Dunlop did 129 point something on a 600 last year, like, which is, I don't know how in hell he, he pulled that off. I mean, like, you know how hard you have to ride to do that, like on a 600, like that was a super black lap record not that long ago. Um, and that thing and that place is so fast that it just showed, and, you know, you might be pulling 100 and, 60 65 mile an hour um out of a out of a good 600 the superbikes are doing 190 they're like 195 the really fast ones so for the him to go out and go and do that time shows just he's going through corners with the thing absolutely pegged and i'm just like oh it's again he's up there i'm down here <laughs> that is absolutely jaw-dropping was there any particular section of the course that you found sort of more surprisingly challenging than, or was just the whole thing just a big challenge? Uh, yeah, the part from about five five yards after the start to five yards before the finish line. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, kind of a stupid... <laughs> no, nah, it's... Um... I mean, it, was it just a constant surprise? I mean, like you say, you knew you knew what was coming next, but all the nuances, was it just this constant surprise and, oh, my God, you know... You kind of riding around with your heart in your mouth, or or, or are you kind of? Yeah, for the first couple of days, you are. Um, the there are some sections that are harder to learn. Um, I really enjoyed the the under Dorrance Bend, Lake Bridge, Dorrance Bend, Laurel Bank, Glen Helen. Like that's just oh, so good, you know. Like when you hit that right, because again, the speeds aren't massive. Like they're quick, and you can still wreck yourself. You can wreck yourself anywhere there, but like it's just like. Yeah, you know, like it's like classical music, you know. You just da, 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 like just paint the paint the corners, and um, then you know, then but then conversely, uh, you come out of uh, Sarah's Cottage uh, onto the Cronkavody Strait, and then there's a corner called Molyneux, which is at the end of the Cronkavody, which is a right hander, top of fifth gear. I mean, that's that's proper scary that corner because it's blind. And you just throw the thing in there, and then then all of a sudden, it's kind of like a bit of a mini Bray Hill in a way, in the um, in the way that it drops down. Um, and that whole section from the from the eleventh milestone to basically uh, Kirk Michael Village, that's quite a difficult section to learn, is because there's a lot of tree coverage, 
um, it's not always the easiest parts to the easiest way to find your, your apexes. I think the most enjoyable part of the circuit has got to be the top of the mountain um, because you spend so much time in the trees, in all this closed off area um, for you know, two, three quarters of the lap, really. And then you get onto the mountain, you come out of the gooseneck, and then all of a sudden it's just a completely different racetrack. And you can see the, the corner entries, you can see the road in front of you. And then it's just like, all right, boys, let's go. Click, click, click into sixth gear and hang on and, and, and off you go. And that's a that's a wild piece. The mountain's just so good. Right. So you're going to be riding the, the Honda SP, the 1000 SP. Yeah. Is there anything sort of special that they're doing to it? Or is it just going to be just literally just a straight production bike? No, it's a straight production. I mean, like, it's a super stock build. Um, the bike, uh, you can run... So the superbike, superbike and the senior TT run superbike rules, which are basically British superbike, world superbike rules. But you can also run a superstock bike in those classes. You can't run a superbike superstock race. If that makes sense. Basically, the way Motor America pads out their grids is, you know, three quarters of them are on superstock bikes versus actual real superbikes. Right. Um, the so I'm racing in the superbike superstock. Uh, and senior TTs. So super stock is two races, one super bike, one senior. Uh, the bike has a standard swing arm. It has standard forks, but with cartridge kits. It's got 10 Carter um, electronics from Holland, from the 10 Carter racing team. Uh, this has got different brakes, uh, like super bike spec Brembo's, Dimag wheels, uh, and just the usual stuff, you know, like resets, bodywork, all the regular race bike stuff. It's pretty standard-ish kind of kind of build, which I think for me is the right way to go about it purely because you have to be riding at such a high level to make a superbike work at any circuit, but especially there. You know, the, the superbikes are so stiff and that like that bike, it's that bike around the TT with the amount of bumps and the jumps and all that kind of stuff. Like it's, you gotta be, like I was saying before, how like it's better just keep the screw on rather than sort of ride in and out of the bumps. Like when you when you do it on a production bike with a standard swing arm fork and all that and triple clamps and whatever, it'll absorb the bumps much better, but it's also not as fast as a super bike. So, you know, if guys like Hickman and Harrison and all those boys, those guys are going fast enough to be able to make those things work. The rest of us, you know, if you're doing 124 mile an hour, 123 mile an hour, like you're not going to be, you're not going fast enough to make the thing work. You know, like it's, you got to be honest with yourself in that regard. And it's nice. And I, this is a bit of a lesson I learned with Pike Speak over the years is like when I first turned up there, I was in the old mindset of like, Pike's going to be super stiff. And it wasn't the right way to go about it. Um, over the years, over the four years that we did it, we just made the bike progressively softer and softer and softer to the point when the Aprilia was, you know, we we had, um, oh yeah, we had a yeah we had a, we had stock forks I think in the Aprilia we had a different shock, so I mean it just showed I think we revalved the forks but they were stock forks and and it just comes back to it got to be it has to be compliant the bike's got to be easy to ride it's got to be smooth. It can't be jarring. It can't be exhausting for the rider because all that stuff, you know, especially when you're talking a six lap superbike race, 
race. I mean, that's the, as far as I'm aware, that's the longest motorcycle race in the world. In terms of a lap. 200 miles and about 1,200 corners, I think, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, like, in terms of, like, time from when you leave to when you finish, I mean, I know world endurance is different, but that's a that's a team's event. And most stints uh, were an hour or so long. I mean, like, yeah, sometimes they do triple stints. You know, the he-man of the world endurance can, can knock out a double or even a triple stint. But I, th- I think, you know, if you're talking point to point, one race, one rider, no teammates. I'm pretty sure the Superbike and the Senior TTs are the longest races in the world. Um, so you've got to have a bike that's easy to ride. It's not easy. You're going to wear you out. You'll make a mistake. You'll crash. And it doesn't, you don't want to crash there. <laughs> crash there. No. So what are, you, <clears throat> what are you doing personally for sort of preparation? I mean, obviously, you're a pretty fit guy. But are you doing anything special other than just your normal routine? Yeah. Not really. I mean, I, I run every day. I, um, you know, I have a, I do all my fitness in the morning and, you know, I just try and stay off the booze as much as I can and uh, <laughs> all that stuff, which sometimes works, sometimes that, doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, now you just got to, uh, racing is mainly not all cardio, but it's a big, big part is cardio. Um, sure. Yeah. You know, you, that's why you see the MotoGP boys are always on their cycles, on their pedal bikes. Um, you know, having that, having that ability to be able, for your muscles to be able to pump all that blood and for you to not get puffed out, there's no point. That's why you don't see He-Man in body motorcycle racing because all that muscle doesn't do anything for you. Um, you got to be light and agile. and um, So, I mean, I've been... I'm a little bit heavier than what I was last year. I think I'm about six pounds heavier than what I was uh, compared to 2022. Uh, but it's also, I've got a bike. With, oh God, I've only got about 75 more horsepower on it. Making, so I think six pounds is going to make a lot of difference personally. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it's just, I, I, super, I ride Supermoto as often as I can. Um, Supermoto, I think, is the best training that i can do i mean obviously the best training i could do would be to be over there racing and doing all that stuff but it's just life gets is making that doesn't doesn't allow for that kind of stuff especially when you live in america um it's also prohibitively expensive um but supermoto is a great way to keep yourself sharp you just want to have that hand-eye coordination um and be able to crack out 20 25 minutes 30 minutes at a really high pace without a mistake um and that go-kart tracks that's the best thing because it's so intense it never you never get a rest and um so you got to be careful with that but uh so you yeah, do all that trying to eat healthy um just you know be good and <laughs> no, just try and be as prepared as possible good good for you okay well i i greatly appreciate it I wish you unbelievable luck in in it. I know you're going to do great and make us all proud. Thanks, man. And uh, I just wanted to uh, just have a quick reference to our listeners that uh, on a completely different note, um, your authorship, you 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 have a, a lovely little boy, Harvey, and you wrote a kid's book, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, we did. That was two, 2021, I think, actually things already been published and um, yeah, I'm old so my brain's going it's all right okay. <laughs> don't, don't worry I'm on the same I'm like that published <laughs> yesterday or three years ago <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I've, uh, I've had enough hits of that 
how's that doing and where can people get that if they want to it's been going great i mean it's been out for a while now uh, uh you can get it on uh, get it on amazon um if you just go or you can go to the big book of motorbikes.com uh it's on there we've also done a coloring in book as well which has been a bit of a hit oh good and that's a that's a little bit cheaper as well it's also twice the size which so a lot of people are buying both of them at the same time but it's been a good thing i mean the the book itself you know like a lot of things was covid project um it was it, the idea came about when harvey was i think he was about three at the time and every time i would give him a bike book he was always so much more happy to, to listen to that than anything else i was like and i read the bike books and like these are all crap i could do a better one than this <laughs> and so i've made that book and it's it's done quite well i mean it, it's it's paid for itself so that's the main thing and um uh, but a lot of, I mean, I get, I get these messages and photos of kids. I've had, I've had kids, I've had kids from obviously Australia, England, USA. I've had them from Brazil. Uh, I've had one, from, a couple from Cape Town in South Africa. Um, I've had them all through, all through um, Europe as well, like Germany, France, Italy. Uh, awesome. Yeah, and they all take pictures, and I mean, it's great when, especially the kids that don't know English, and they're sitting there reading the big book of motorbikes. It's quite, <laughs> it's quite hilarious. So, I mean, the whole—it was never supposed to be a money-making exercise. The whole thing was just to try and get kids interested in bikes again. Um, and uh, this subject has been—it's been my life for as long as I can remember, and it's given me this ability to be able to travel the world and do really cool things and um, race the old man, for example. So, right. There's, right. there's all these, and but that's only one facet of motorcycling, as you well know. Like, you know, one of the coolest things I ever did was ride around Morocco on a, uh, ride around Nepal on a, on a Royal Enfield back in the day, and eat, eat street curries of, you know, street vending curries for fifty cents, and you know, just that kind of stuff. Like, I don't, I don't care what you do with your bike as long as you go riding, and we need to foster that in young kids and get them interested in riding, whatever facet that takes. I agree. Yeah. Okay. Rennie, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and uh, we'll definitely be thinking of you and keeping our fingers crossed and looking for a, uh, a better result than last year. I think that's basically what you're going for, isn't it? Yeah, we're just, I mean, when I, my approach to these things is like, whatever, as long as you come back in one piece, whatever happens after that is a bonus. So I'm not going there for a result. I'm not going there with any expectations. Um, yeah, I'm going to go there. Right, as best as I can, try and go fast, come back with a few cool stories and you know, we'll, we'll catch up when we get back. We'll sit down and have a beer and I'll tell you all about it. Can't wait. Can't wait. Yeah. Thanks, Good mate. Good night, right. mate. Cheers. All right. All right.